and then he turns into a little ball and flies up to the stars, and I went, F*** you, movie. Radio It's a very haunted house edition, haunted house, get it, of Radiodrome. I am Josh Hadley. With me, as always, is Cecil shows up sometimes tracking Wait, how can I be with you always, but then show up sometimes? That's the dichotomy of you. And uh, Peter's not here. Maybe he'll show up later. He's late. But we have sitting in for this special house retrospective, our house guest... Mike White. Uh, I'm done with the house jokes, by the way. Oh, now. you were were watching the house movies, not the house party movies. Oh boy, this is oh be a damn. Fun one. Me too. Oh man, it's gonna you make know. house party two look like house party three. <laughs> they used to call it chicken bone. Before we get into the house franchise, you guys need to go to AdamandEve.com. Use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E, and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free power O-ring, and free U.S. shipping. Just use the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. The house franchise is a, is one where, and I'll get into it a little bit later, how Sean Cunningham thinks he screwed this franchise up. It's a franchise that's not really a franchise. It's more of a banner under which various horror films would end up being released. There are four films in this franchise, yet there are three films in this franchise, yet there are seven films in this franchise. All in all, of the four we're going to discuss tonight... What did you think of the franchise? Was House a good franchise? House is not a good franchise. I grew up watching the original House from 19, what, 86? Several times when I was in high school, into college, and then even just a few years ago, rewatched it, and still absolutely love that movie. And really never bothered with the other house movies after that i I remember of course the uh the great pun of house Two, the second story but never really bothered with it until this episode watching that one three and four and um yeah i'm fine just watching the first movie i really don't ever need to see any of these other movies ever ever again fair enough um, I'm kind of the same way. I think that the, the original movie is a genuine, like, horror comedy classic. It's got some great effects. It's just a terrific direction from Steve Miner. Uh, it just, it feels very unique and fun and fresh and, uh, uh like, uh, the characters are likable. It has, like, a little bit of an Evil Dead vibe to it. Really enjoyable film that I've seen a bunch of times and it's always just really entertaining. And the sequels really are, it's, it's like in name only sequels, which is kind of the thing. I, I don't think that they, they carry the same charm. They don't have the same wit and they're really just kind of there. Well, see, I, I think this does not work as a franchise, but I genuinely love the first two. And we'll get into each one specifically, but when it comes to three, not three, and four, what the hell were you thinking? They completely were off the rails as a franchise. So let's go back in time. This is a house where no one should live. 
woman lived here before you was nuts. Wouldn't be surprised if someone just got fed up and off her. She was my aunt. Heart of gold, though. Roger Cobb has come here alone. Daddy? <laughs> but no one is ever alone in the house. This house knows everything about you. Leave while you can. No! It has been waiting for him. Hi. Sandy. Now. It wants you. Horror has found a new home. your own risk. As Mike pointed out, the first film was 1986, written by Fred Decker, technically screenplay by Ethan Wiley, but Fred Decker came up with the the bulk of the story, and directed by Steve Miner, produced by Sean Cunningham. House is, as Cecil put it, it's got a very Evil Dead vibe to it, which I can't disagree with, and it also has a very, the, the violence in it is very cartoonish. The, the monsters are very exaggerated, like something out of real Ghostbusters. So it's not horror the way you would traditionally think of horror, but it's horror in monsters and dismemberment and haunted houses. And it is really fun. It's inventive. It's unique. It's got a story you can put your stakes in. I have some nitpicks about it. But overall, House is a solid, solid movie. Apparently audiences thought so, because on a $3 million budget, it made $21 million theatrically and was a hit with critics in 1986. It was just so much fun. I mean, William Catt really kind of showed his his, uh, his strengths in this film. I thought it was uh, really a smart casting decision to put him in here because he's likable, but at the same time, he can play crazy pretty well. And yeah, I enjoyed what they did with the whole idea of the, the, the house being inherited from his aunt and him trying to find his son and the problems that he has working out with his wife, but then also the problems that he had when it came to some of his war experiences. I mean, 1986 and William Catt as a Vietnam veteran. I don't know necessarily how much I buy that, but, and then of course having Richard Mall. Richard Mall to me just adds 10 points Big across man. the board. So it was wonderful having him in here. And then it was great seeing George Went in a film because, you know, at this point, what, he was, was he even in Cheers at this yeah. point? I can't remember when Cheers, Cheers was on. Cheers came on in like 82 or 83. So he'd, he'd been oh, on wow. Cheers a couple of seasons already. So yeah, he was great in this as well. And Cecil was saying as far as the effects and everything, Everything looked terrific and very cartoonish and just some of the, the goofy things like having the tools attacking him and having them in one room and having a monster in the other and him opening up the door and using the tools to disembody or, or, or decapitate the monster. Very smart. Very well done. I thought that this film was, was very well executed. 
pretty much all the same stuff. I just, I love it. It showed uh, William Cat, like, because I had only, as well as probably a lot of people, only knew him from uh, Greatest American Hero. Mm -hmm. And then seeing him in this, he did tackle it in a way that was, like, kind of serious. Like, he played it fairly straight, but it wasn't really particularly a 100% serious movie. And uh, I thought he did a really good job. Uh, It actually gave a little bit of uh, acting to George Went. Like, George Went was playing the neighbor who was, like, depressed. You don't think of him in a horror movie, do you? No. no, no, you don't think of him in a horror movie, and he's actually got, like, a little bit of depth to his character. He's not just, you know, Norm, which is how, again, a lot of people knew him. Uh, seeing Richard Maul, again, knowing him from Night Court, uh, seeing him as the crazy, uh, buddy from Vietnam who's come back from the dead for revenge. Uh, he looked, he looked great, you know, uh, with and without the makeup. The, the creature effects were fantastic. The, uh, the cleverness of the design, like Mike said, with the, uh, the flying, uh, yard equipment flying through and decapitating the one like evil witch thing the humor of it where the, he thinks that the neighbor you know was coming over to hit on him and she wants him to babysit the kid mm. and then like and the kid gets abducted by the monsters in the house and, and the whole house was like alive which was also like really cool like there's the the um the marlin on the wall was was you know doing the give me back that filet fish you know I, I actually <laughs> thought one of the most unique elements was how the bathroom mirror was into another world that was full of water and tentacle monsters that somehow washed mm-hmm. up into v- into Vietnam memories. I'm like, that's unique because there's that scene where he opens up the mirror and there's this whole other world in there and he sticks his head out the window and starts feeling on the wall behind it. And I'm mm-hmm. like, that's really inventive. I, I really liked that. It was just great. They like all the movie was just so full of inventive ideas like that. Stuff that, you know, I hate to say it, but stuff that you don't really see a whole lot these days. And Steve Miner did such a good job when it came to setting up some of this stuff. I mean, we see the fish well before we, you know, have it come to life. We see the bathroom mirror. There are several shots where you think something is going to be behind the mirror when he closes the the the, the medicine cabinet. And so he's setting us up with all this kind of stuff and showing us all of these moving pieces before he actually pushes them into play. And I thought that was really smart. And like I said, I have a couple of nitpicks, but overall, I think the movie is really smart. You have George. George went as sort of the everyman because William Cat is playing a Stephen King-like horror author who's now in one of his own stories to a degree. Just as a side note, I want to know what it was with George Went in this time because okay, William Cat's playing a Stephen King-style author, and George Went himself played a Stephen King-style author in Dreamscape just the year earlier. I don't know if that was a specific thing George Went was after or not, but I noticed it. He's sort of like patronizing William Cat as Roger Cobb. Like, yeah, I've read all your books and all that. Fucking crazy, but I'll go with you because, you know, I'm a fan. And he just, he, he was really cool about the whole thing, and he didn't believe it until the monster in the closet comes out, and then all of a sudden, he's just horrified. He actually had a realistic reaction to that, pissing himself and freezing up in terror. You don't usually see that in a horror movie like this. Do you read Sutter Kane? Wrong Stephen uh. King style author. <laughs> but like, you know, the, some of the nitpicks are, and maybe it's because I was seeing this on DVD and I'd only ever seen it on VHS before. When Big Ben is the big, is the skeleton at the end, you can clearly see Richard Maul's eyes and mouth moving underneath the costume and you can see the costume looks a little rubbery and where it's supposed to be bone and whatnot. Some of the special effects don't hold up, but at the same time, they go to that cartoonish 
style that I think the movie really, really benefited from. The use of the blue skin for the one female demon really just kind of enhances that it's, you know, a creature from beyond our dimension, as it were. And the whole thing with, you know, you're right, when it comes to Evil Dead, there's a lot of Evil Dead kind of jokes in there, especially the disembodied hand when he's trying to bury the the dead body of the the demon and when it comes back and everything. But yeah, I think that, yeah, it, it looks it looks cartoonish, but it works when it comes to this because, you know, it really kind of puts things into a more hyper-real kind of a, a world. So I really had no problems, and I loved the use of the practical effects. I thought that was great. I, I love them. Same thing. I think that uh, this is a movie that uh, if they were to remake it, I'm sure there somebody somewhere is is thinking about it. They would use CGI, and it would lose just all of the charm. Uh-huh. Well, the only thing that really truly disappointed me about this movie was the ending. I kind of was hoping he wouldn't have rescued his son. I, I think him getting his son back, and I don't know, maybe I'm just so cynical. It kind of irked me. And then I, I, I also want to know what happened. I think there should have been a five-minute epilogue of what happened. Oh, so Mr. Cobb, your son has gone missing in this house and is considered dead. Now you've somehow found your son eight years later and he's the same age? There are some questions to be asked here in the practical world, aren't there? Yeah, but it was a movie where he was fighting his his dead buddy from Vietnam on, in an alternate dimension and witches and living Marlins. Some things, you know, you don't need reality to, to creep back in on something so ludicrous. But, I mean, his son is now back. His son's going to have to be going to school again. They're going to have to reinstate his social security number. The cops are going to get involved at some point after this movie. That was my point. Yeah, but, you know, you, some some things just, they don't need to be said. Now, maybe if at, like, an after credit sequence, they did, like, a little goof on there or something about, like you said, you know, well, how is he the same age or or something like that? But, uh, it you know, they, they, they had just enough budget as it was to get the movie done. So I'm sure they didn't have anything extraneous to shoot a little uh, silly, you know, extra scene or something. So I'm, I'm willing to... Uh, to let it go it's not you know it's no big deal i think you're overthinking things josh isn't that what i do that is what you do well and then this movie was such a hit with critics and at the box office so a sequel was inevitable last year audiences everywhere thrilled to a terrifying film about the horrors of home ownership house now there's an all-new house. It's like you got some kind of alternate universe in there or something. With brand new owners. Charlie. Huh? We got it. And it's getting weirder. Look! It's a prehistoric bird! <laughs> I got you, Jess! I've seen enough tragedy and disaster to make you want to upchuck in your shorts. Two friends inherit a fantastic house. Charlie, there's a jungle in there. And a 170-year-old mummy. Surprise! Who is this? You can call me Gramps. Now, they're in for more trouble than they ever imagined. You're going to kick the door open, run in there blindly, and I'll cover you, okay? Guy with the big gun goes first. House 2, the second story. This place gives me the creeps. So Sean Cunningham got got Ethan Wiley, the writer 
the co-writer of the first film, to now co-write, along with Fred Decker again, and direct the second film, House to the Second Story, in 1987. They went for a PG-13 this time, instead of making it R. They, they continued with the cartoonish-style violence, so I don't think this one suffers for being PG-13, because I don't think it needed to be more graphic, but this one was much more of a comedy than the first one. The first one balanced the comedy and horror aspects pretty decently. This one is much more of a comedy with horror trappings. And I think House 2, the second story, just so unique. I think there are so many great ideas in it. Does everything land? No, everything does not land. There are tons of extraneous scenes. Bill Maher's part could have been completely cut out of this movie and it wouldn't have affected a damn thing. To amp up the comedy aspect, in this one you've got John Ratzenberger. I don't know if that was another in-joke, getting another Cheers cast member in this for a small role. He steals this movie for the ten minutes that he's in it. Yep. There it is. Looks like you got some kind of alternate universe in there or something. Thanks. I don't know you guys. Look, that's an alternate dimension in there or something, and, uh... Incredible. Well, hold on a second, will you? Uh, I've been through this kind of thing before. Just don't touch anything till I get there. Looks like you're gonna need the help of a professional. How Airy Gross, Jonathan Stark, and Royal Dano are less than memorable when when the, the goofy electrician slash adventurer who's in the movie for 10 minutes is the most, is the largest takeaway. But I thought this one was just super inventive. And I know Mike did not. Yeah, I was kind of bored silly by this movie. I mean, can you maybe help explain some of the plot to me as far as like the women in the film? Because I'm having a hard time understanding who some of these women are. Like, I thought Charlie had a girlfriend, but then she kind of disappears. And Ari Gross, I thought he had a girlfriend, and then she goes off with Bill Maher. And then there's that other girl who was there, and she was drunk. I mean, uh, so I don't know what's going on with some of these characters. And then all I know is there's like a a goofy dog hand puppet and a, a bird puppet. And then I did like Royal Dano. I was very happy. Whenever Royal Dano was on the screen, I was like, okay, great. It's Gramps from The Frighteners. This is fantastic. He was having a ball. Yeah, yeah, and I love his voice. I love Royal Dano's voice. But, yeah, um, I was really reminded of my science project as I was watching this movie, and it just really just wasn't doing it for me. Uh, I thought it was a big step down from the original. Uh, it just, uh, it did have a lot of creativeness. It did bring back a lot of practical effects and things were, were unique and cool looking. Just thought the story was all over the place and, uh, I just didn't really care particularly. This one, I just, maybe because this one played on cable more, so I saw this one more than the original. I just, I loved this one with the undead gunfighter and then you've got the Aztec virgin sacrifice that they end up saving now in, in the present of 1987 and then you've got the prehistoric bird and you have the little catter puppy and then you got Royal Dano as another undead gunfighter and then you got the crystal skull and you've got cavemen and all these alternate worlds and Mike I absolutely see where you get a My Science Project vibe out of this because My Science Project was that 86 or was that 88 I can't remember if that was before or after this but there's a lot of stylistic similarities there so I totally agree with you on that. Was there one Crystal Skull or two Crystal Skulls? There was one that they kept fighting over. The Crystal Skull was kind of the MacGuffin in this one. All the bad guys wanted it and all the good guys had to protect it. And it kept getting stolen and rescued and stolen and rescued and stolen and rescued. And then eventually all the 
the Aztec girl and the prehistoric bird and the caterpuppy and everybody ends up in the Old West trapped in time because that's where they choose to live. And I guess they just live in the Old West now. They were in the Old West, really? At the end, yeah. Holy shit, I did not get that at all. You were bored, so you were trying to stay awake. Yeah, wow. I'm I'm sorry, I feel kind of bad, but I was just like, I, I really did not get that they were in the Old West. I will agree with you, 100% John Ratzenberger owns this movie. When he comes in and he's like, oh, you got a riff to another dimension, and when he gives him his business card and everything, everything about the Ratzenberger stuff, fantastic. Once he leaves the movie, my attention just drifted off again. Uh, I just think that it's funny that they had, they had John, uh, I'm sorry, they had George Went in the first one and then John Ratzenberger in the second one. I was, you know, at the time I'm thinking if they do a third one, they're going to have to, you know, pull in, uh, you know, Ted Danson, Ted Danson or somebody. I-, I could totally see Kirstie Alley in one of those. Come on, Jenky. It's checkout time. Nobody's going to miss Max Jenky. Especially Detective Lucas McCarthy. Glad you could make it, cop. He was born bad and stayed that way. <laughs> Nobody's going to miss Max Janky. We sent 50,000 volts of juice through that scum. Looks pretty dead to me, Professor. Because he hasn't gone anywhere. Lucas! I'm coming back to tear your world apart. You're dreaming! I thought you were dead. Damn it, Vinny, you scared me! I love you, Vinny. No! I told you I'd be back. If you thought Freddy was a howl... Funny thing happened to me on the way to the studio today. (laughs) And Jason was a scream. I got a present for you. Wait till you meet Max. Not even close. He's a cut above the rest. (laughs) The Horror Show. This is just the beginning. Let's go back to House 3. So, House 3, which is not House 3, in 1989, Sean Cunningham wanted to make a third House movie. Now, the movie that we have as the horror show was made as House 3 for all intents and purposes. Its pre-production was House 3. The cast all signed on as House 3. The first two movies were released by New World Pictures. This is post-Roger Corman New World Pictures. This time, MGM was putting out House House 3. They did not want it to be part of a franchise. So, in America, this was just released as the horror show, not a house movie. Which really confuses people then when in America we get House 4 next, because in America we didn't ever got House 3. The horror show is really a shit show. Not only is the movie terrible, it's behind the scenes would make a much better movie than the garbage that's on the screen. This movie had two directors, one which was fired after three weeks, and then another one who decided he wanted to make a different movie. It has two writers, one of whom took an Alan Smithy credit over how the film turned out, and the film can't decide if it wants to be a supernatural horror, a PTSD exploration, or a slasher film. Before I get into the backstory of what a what a cluster f*** this one is. I liked it better than House 2. 
it, it moved. There was actually stuff going on. And it had Brian James and Lance Hendrickson, you know, two of my favorite character actors. And uh, Brian James just pretty much laughed through the entire film, which was uh, got a little annoying towards the end. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> I actually thought Meat Cleaver Max in this, as he played, was was the long-lost brother of the character he played in Crime Wave. I, I actually liked when so much of the movie is Lance, Hen- Lance Henriksen just freaking the fuck out, thinking that uh, he's seeing things that he isn't, or maybe he is and nobody else is. I mean, he just, he's fucking crazy through most of it. When Brian James comes on television and, and is doing a stand-up act, I actually was very amused, and I was just like, wow, I, I could actually sit here and listen to a half an hour of Brian James just doing his stand-up act. I just think that it's funny that this uh, this concept they you know there's the whole legal battle over uh, the horror show and Shocker because they're both the same movie. Yes. They really are. I remember because okay, Shocker had a longer production. Shocker was in production first, but Horror Show came out first, and each one was accusing the other one of ripping the other one off. And it, it's it's clear, especially when you when you look at Sean Cunningham around this time that he was chasing Wes Craven. You look at some of the other movies Cunningham put out at this time, he was chasing Wes Craven. And so I think he really was like, no, I'm going to beat Craven to the punch. Because remember, these two used to work together and they had a falling out. So I think this was a f*** you Wes Craven movie. That he was like, no, I'm going to make Shocker better than you and first. And it feels yeah. like he just took two or three weeks to make this whole movie. Although I do like the horror show more than Shocker. Yeah, oh like, yeah. Like, Shocker is one of the Craven movies that I just don't, like, care for. I mean, it's got a great cast. It's, uh, and I actually saw Shocker before I saw the horror show. And, um, I don't think that, uh, like, I mean, having, uh, Mitch Pelegi or Pelegi, I, I didn't realize for years that I'm like, oh my god, that's the, the head of the FBI on, <laughs> <laughs> that's oh, Skinner. Yeah, it's Skinner. Holy, it's Skinner. <laughs> Holy crap. Because um, he, you know, he plays you know, a psychotic guy and not uh, the head of the FBI. So, you know, kudos for him for uh, for being able to pull that off. Brian James, I think it's just, uh, you know, we needed more Brian James in movies. I always enjoy, whenever he showed up, he just really chewed every scene he was in, regardless of the movie. Lance Henriksen, I always love. And I just feel that uh, the horror show, it just, it was lacking something. I mean, it wasn't lacking in cast. Maybe if it wasn't a uh, ripoff, uh, you know, if, if maybe it had a little more time to work on the script or something, maybe if that's the truth, like if, you know, Sean was really trying to crank this out uh, to kind of one-up Wes to get it out before him, but it it did feel like it just needed a little bit more time to cook. It needed a, maybe another rewrite on the script, maybe a little bit, you know, an extra week in production or, or something. Or maybe not it firing just... its director three weeks in, or maybe the writer not taking his name off the script. Well, well, I'm saying, but that all comes into it, like being a rush job. You know, when when you have that kind of stuff, it it means that like there's a lot of pressure and there's a lot of just uh, animosity and stuff going on in the set, and you know, tempers are high and shit happens and people get fired and people quit, and so uh, you know, if they if they weren't rushing this, it probably would have turned out a lot better. It feels like there are some really good moments in here that are kind of hidden, like the whole thing with the son character, Scott, who is scamming the Nestle Quick Company. and Except <laughs> just that's like never brought up again. Oh, well, at the end, he 
the guy shows up with all the Nestle Quick okay, stuff. Okay, a, a minor little tag. Oh, come on. That was perfect. That was that great. Was, yeah, that was the setup. It was like Laszlo sending in for all those contests and then yes! pulling up in the Winnebago at the end. And, well, and, and he won. Did, did you guys notice <laughs> that the son is played by Nog from Deep Space Nine? Those Ferengi tendencies kicking in early, I see. <laughs> but, uh, but, but this one, okay, it was, the movie was started by David Blythe, who his only notable work prior to this would have been 1984's Death Warmed Up, a surprisingly good horror movie. He, according to Sean Cunningham, Blythe wanted to make a psychological horror film about post-traumatic stress. And you can very much see in some of the scenes with Henriksen, you, you know exactly, you can see exactly which scenes Blythe directed in this movie. They are the ones that are slower and dealing with Henriksen's mental state. Cunningham was like, that's not the movie I want to make. I want to make a, a horror movie. So Blythe was fired after a couple of weeks, and then James Isaac, who had never directed anything up to this point, he was a special effects guy for Cunningham on House 2 and other things like Deep Star 6 and that. Well, when James Isaac came in, James Isaac was making a slasher movie, but they didn't have the budget or time to reshoot the stuff that Blythe did. This movie is all over the place tonally. You'll have a really effective scene, like Mike, you were talking about the stand-up comedy on the TV scene, where Henriksen is seeing that, and his family is seeing some, like, Johnny Carson special, and he pulls out his gun and starts shooting the TV, and the, the wife quick gets the kids out of the room, and I'm like, that's a really effective psychological thriller scene. And then what's the next one? A guy with a meat cleaver hacking up people. That was part of the problem I had. Half of this is a slasher movie, half of it is a supernatural slow burn thriller, and they do not come together at all to me. This movie is so all over the place. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it is very, very uneven. Sometimes that actually kind of works for me in that Hendrickson seems to be kind of in his own film. I just, I don't know. I kept thinking, you should get some help, dude. You should really get some help. <laughs> just like as soon as things, you know, as soon as, as uh, Brian James on that turkey turns around and is uh, talking to him about, you know, <laughs> what happened to his family and he sees them all with their throats slit. I'm just like, yeah, I'd, I'd probably check myself into a hospital if I was him. But, Which actually is what you know. I wanted. I, I thought the best twist this movie could have done, instead of pulling the wife a la A Nightmare on Elm Street, again, the entire last act of this thing is straight out of A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, again, showing how Cunningham was, was chasing Wes Craven. Until the wife and the kids get pulled into this whole thing, I thought, wouldn't it be great if Max Jenke really is dead and Lance Henriksen is just going crazy and like he did yeah. kill Dee Dee's boyfriend and all this, but then they, they stuck, they stick with the supernatural stuff and I'm like, man, you guys had something unique here and you pissed on it. Yeah, it could have been something a little bit more special. It definitely, uh, it's clear. And I, I think why they also decided to go more the slasher route than the kind of psychological angle was because in, at time, everybody was trying to have the next Jason. Everybody was trying to have the next Freddy. And, uh, they were hoping that, uh, you, this would be, uh, you, you know, Max Jenke would be the next thing and you know they i mean because being uh the the spirit that can travel you know through uh, electricity and all that not quite as much as shocker but still in a similar vein that uh, they could have done a lot with that they could have uh, really had him go head to head repeatedly with lance henriksen and really had that be the franchise but uh it it they could have focused it a little bit more and made it more of a psychological thing and it would have resonated a lot more instead of being quite as 
corny as it ended up being. And corny is the right word because one one of the uh-huh. hot points in this is that Max Jenke knows he's eventually going to get caught and he's eventually going to get the electric chair. So he had a custom-built electric chair in his apartment. The way that you can become immune to certain poisons is giving yourself small doses of poison until your body builds up an immunity to it so the poison is no longer effective. He did that with electricity, was giving himself larger and larger doses of electricity until electricity didn't hurt him anymore. That is the stupidest thing I think I have ever uttered on this show, and that's a major plot point in this movie. The one guy who kind of knows what's going on, uh, I can't remember the character's name, but he's he's pretty unhinged in it. And I think, you know, I, I made a comparison to the, the Frighteners with the last movie. And had he been played by somebody a little bit more... Uh, out there. Tom Bray kind of oh, plays him as very, very sketchy and very, you know, jittery. Yeah, but had he been able to to go more Jeffrey Combs, I think he would have. It would have been a little bit better. Jeffrey Combs could make could make that speech about the electricity. He could have sold that. Oh yeah. Yeah, would have brought some gravitas to it. And then I also want to point out, Dee Dee Pfeiffer is Lance Henriksen's daughter in this. This is not one of her first roles, but one of her earlier roles. God, she was always so cute, wasn't she? I, I've always I've been more fond of her sister. I, so. I like Dee Dee better than Michelle. That's just my thing. And uh, I also want to point out to everyone who watches this movie, you think you see Dee Dee Pfeiffer naked in this movie. You don't. She had a no-nudity clause. You'll notice every time you see her boobs in this movie, you also don't see her face. So I, well, I just I just want to ruin that for everyone. You're not actually seeing Dee Dee Pfeiffer naked. Well, that's the clincher for you know every movie. Uh, whenever you whenever there's like a cutaway, it's so like the, the one of the worst ones ever is in um, Showdown in Little Tokyo where Tia Carrere. And she goes, like, she she starts to take her top off, and then it cuts away, and it's somebody with not only a completely different body frame, but a different skin color. (laughs) I'm like, all right, come on, guys. Well... Well, I think one of the other worst ones we're going to talk about here in a few minutes with House 4. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. James Isaac thought he could get around this because Dee Dee was over 18 at the time. And even though she had a no nudity clause, he was trying to guilt her on the set into just doing it. Dee Dee, you'll save me time. We won't have to find a body double. Just do it. It's only a couple of seconds on film. I think that's a sleazy ass director, honestly. When you know she no. said no to nudity and you're going to try and pressure her anyway by saying it'll help you out, I think you're kind of a scumbag. Oh, come on. Directors aren't like that. I mean, next thing yeah. you're going to tell me the uh, the rape scene from uh, uh, Last Angle in Paris was, was not consensual. What about the rape scene in El Topo? Oh, wait. That was real, too. The horror show was not a big box office success. It had a $4 million budget and only made $1.7 million at the box office. So at this point, the House franchise is pretty much dead as a theatrical franchise. But Sean Cunningham was not about to let it just go away. So in 1992, the series is stuck going direct-to-video at this point. So we have House 4, The Repossession. Roger Cobb has returned to his father's house. You're making a big mistake. He promised he would live here. There are many memories of the past still sleeping in this house. I'm tired of that house. He never knew he would die here. come home to 
plumber. If you love being scared, <laughs> welcome home. a piece of shit this clearly had no money this thing i'll look i'll talk about how it's not really roger cobb in a minute this thing was just so boring nothing happens in this movie and it's it's superbly confused american audiences because they went house four but we never got house three what the fuck well, again, I kind of like this more than two. Um, this one was pretty boring as well, though, um, not as boring as the second one for me. But yeah, it was, it was a little bit more than confusing to have William Cat back playing a character by the same name, but to have him be a completely different person. <laughs> yeah, they, 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 they say he's playing Roger Cobb, except now Roger Cobb is an architect and not a horror author. Roger Cobb in the first film grew up in his aunt's house. Now he grew up in this house. Roger Cobb was the last of the Cobb bloodline since his son was missing in the first film. Now he has a brother that he never had before. Would it surprise you, Mike? Mike, would it surprise you to find out that this was not written as Roger Cobb and they only got William Cat nine days before shooting started? That would not surprise me at all. So yes, not Roger Cobb stars in this, even though it is William Cat. Well, and I like how he's there and they kill him so quickly. Like, as they were pulling away from the house after showing him and setting up so much of the story, I was just like, I don't see William Cat being in this movie for very much longer. And then he wasn't. Except the ear, oh my god, the ending of this movie pissed me off so much. This is the first one that I guess brings in angels? As the toxic waste that the mafia is storing under, the, or trying to store under the house and all this, and all there's this Indian mysticism nonsense, you know, it was the early 90s. All of a sudden, a police officer helps save the wife and daughter, and it's William Cat, and then he turns into a little ball and flies up to the stars, and I went, fuck you, movie. Yeah, I was reminded of 976 Evil 2 when I was watching the ending of this one. He was dead already! <gasps> really? Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, this was such a train wreck i and they wanted to go for comedy like the whole mr grosso character played played by uh, mark gash this uh kind of strange looking little person i think he was a little person like you barely ever see the guy but pretty gross and then the brother who again could have kind of gone balls out with the performance but he was way too sedate so yeah there were moments that could have been 
funny, like especially when the hitmen see each other having like what a uh, fly head and a lizard head and they're shooting at each other. I was like, okay, that that could have been amusing, but they just miss every single time they missed when it came to the comedy stuff. And then even when it came to the horror stuff, I was just like, okay, well, she's got that same PTSD that uh, Lance Henriksen had. So her kind of going crazy on a pizza the same way that Lance Henriksen went nuts on a turkey. I was like, uh, yeah, no, this really isn't doing it for me. Again, if I was the daughter, I would have been like, mom, you need to get some help. You know, and especially when she's there with a knife over her daughter's bed. I was like, ah, yeah, no, not too good. Also, I want to point out about the daughter. She's 13. This movie takes place six years after the first film. The daughter he didn't have as not Roger Cobb in the first film. Uh, Yet another indication this was not written as Roger Cobb and they just, they just changed the name and that's it. Well, then they would have had to change Kelly Cobb's name too. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know if I buy that theory. I like repossessed better. Oh. God, you would. I would. <laughs> Repossessed is great, and there are other people, plenty of other people who agree with me. Uh, yes, wrong you can people. Ask, uh, Linda Blair, she'll do that dance for you. Even yes. if you don't ask her, she'll <laughs> do that dance for you. <laughs> Please throw oh. nickels at me. Jeez, what a crazy fucking bitch she is, man. <laughs> I, not to get off on that tear, but I kind Ooh. of lost a bit of respect for her when she showed up at the Exorcist panel and refused to talk about the Exorcist. I, oh, yeah. I'm like, what? Look, all right, I understand that you have pet causes, but... Oh, God, did she tell you how to walk a dog correctly? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Oh, look, my God. We're we're here to talk about The Exorcist. Well, we're here to talk yeah. about House 4. Yes, House 4 is, is a mess. I, I really, I can't even... You, you you pretty much summed it up. It's it's not good. It, it's actually bland. It, it's so bland and safe and... I have I have issues with Sean Cunningham in general. I think Sean Cunningham is kind of a hack. I think his greatest strength is finding other people, other talented people, and then taking credit for them. Because, like, when I listened to the, the commentary on the horror show, he was very much a anything someone did right, that was because I taught them. Anything that went wrong, oh, the studio meddled with it, or the distributor meddled with it, or this was a problem with the script. Anything that's wrong in these house movies is not Sean Cunningham's fault. Anything that is right is because I came up with that. That's the way he comes off to me. He's a very egotistical hack who thinks he's more important than he is. That's just my feeling on Sean Cunningham. He had next to nothing to do with this movie, according to him, but I don't know, his fingerprints are kind of all over. Over it. There's a lot of Sean Cunningham staples in House 4. So I think this is another one where, uh, that was your fault. Not me. Not me. I met him a while ago and he was like the nicest guy. He was just like really super cool. Was See, I've met enough celebrities and whatnot. You can always tell when the, the ones that are like gen- genuine and the other ones that are just kind of like, oh yeah, you know, like just being disingenuous, you know. But he was super cool. I had a nice chat with him for a while. He was overjoyed that uh, I wanted to talk about uh, Deep Star 6 as opposed to Friday the 13th. So that was just really cool. Uh, I, I don't know. I think that, uh, I like, if you look at a lot of his movies uh, that he's directed, like, there's definitely a good bit of talent there. And uh, I think he works good on both sides of the fence. I think he's a good director, and I think that he's good at uh, noticing talent and bringing them in and being a, a good producer. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't go anywhere near calling him a hack. There are there are genuine hacks out there, and uh, he is not one of them. Well, one of the reasons I say that is 
I mentioned at the beginning of this how he feels he screwed the franchise up as a franchise, and I think House 4 is one of those reasons where he's also deflecting. He says what he wished happened was he had some sort of a linking element with all the House movies instead of just being sort of a banner under which Haunted House movies appeared. You know, maybe it was the same house each time, or Amityville-style an object from the house, or there was like a recurring secondary character that was in all of them. He wished there was some kind of a linking device, and he says that's why he brought Roger Cobb back for this one. And that's when, as Mike and I pointed out, but this isn't Roger Cobb. You brought William Cat back. You didn't bring Roger Cobb back. Oh, House 4 is a direct sequel to the first film. No, Sean, it's not. No, it's not. And I should, uh, as the glorified cameo of the episode, talk about it as You're well. You're here! Ah, there you go. <laughs> hey. Okay. Well, I was waiting for my moment. What do you think of House 4, Motor then? Mouse would stop for a second. <laughs> I hated House 4. House 4 is by far the, the worst one. And uh, I guess before I get into it, I will kind of quickly go through the other three since I missed the episode. The first one's great. It's got a great villain. It's got a great premise. I love all the Vietnam stuff. Big Ben made a great villain for the end of the movie. And everything was tied up nicely. Got his son back. And it was a good way to just kind of end off on that the second one i like as well i think it's fun i love the little portal to the weird like prehistoric world the weird like funny caterpillar puppy thing and like the cute little pterodactyl and like the the adventurer repairman like i feel like house two would have been a good way to branch off into a mini series house three is hilarious um because it's two different movies having at each other's throats you have byron james as a serial killer and byron james as like this weird supernatural thing like post shocker but watching him and lance henriksen uh, bounce off of each other was really fun whereas four didn't have the charm that any of them had because one through three all of them have um dark humor elements to it there's a bit of black comedy not so much in three but there's stuff that you laugh at unintentionally like when 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 byron james is the turkey like that that cracked me the hell up whereas in this film it didn't make a lot of sense they obviously didn't mean to tie it into the first movie it obviously wasn't meant to be uh, a direct sequel as much as sean s cunningham claims that just because you, you bring back william cat He's obviously not playing the same characters, just by the same name. It's not the same house, clearly. It's this, like, weird house out in the middle of, like, the desert or something. It's really boring. It really drags. Uh, there's a lot of weird non sequitur moments. Like, do you, I think you only ever see that weird midget character once, and it's got this weird, like, almost Twin Peaks kind of lighting to it. Like, everything is red and made out of wood, and it's really closely shot, and then he feeds the guy his own phlegm or something. Like, the f*** was that? And then the house yep. explodes, the house like explodes at the end in this like weird teal colored jizz. What the hell was house for? It felt like a Sean Cunningham movie. Like it felt like bad Sean Cunningham. It felt like Jason goes to hell Sean Cunningham. It sucked. At the end, the blue jizz, the, um, uh, the healing waters or the spiritual waters or whatever. Did the little girl get healed from that? I kept waiting for her to stand up and be like, oh, hey, the water healed me. If they did that, I would have I yeah. been even more pissed off than I was at the William Cat Angel thing. That would have pissed me off oh, even God. more. Yeah, because she, she gets up. Because she gets up out of her wheelchair. I remember that. So I guess maybe either that stuff or, like, the spirit of William Cat somehow... Uh, gave her the, the the function of her legs back or or something. There were a few a few. I won't 
can the movie completely. A few of the moments were kind of effective. Like, I liked all the stuff when you would see William Cobb's character, like, all burned up and stuff from the car crash. Those were actually some kind of creepy moments when she's having the nightmares about that. And then there's the moment where he's, like, his mangled corpse is, like, standing behind. And I thought they were going to go through sort of a vengeful ghost angle with that, where maybe he would be, like, this evil, tormented spirit and just kind of, they they do, like, uh, a total... 180 where he he becomes the sort of villain of the movie and he he blames her for his death because she was the one that uh, was driving the car at the time and i thought it was going to have his like mangled corpse like haunting her throughout the house because there are some creepy moments where you do see like it's subtle um seeing his damage like you see little glimpses of it it's really gruesome he's like missing an arm he's missing a leg his his clothes are all like melded to his skin like it looked gross but it didn't match up with anything else in the movie like they're they're all every Everything else was so mishmashed and, and messy, and it it made three feel like more of a cohesive film, which is that's sad. I don't know if I'm just too much of a De Palma fan, but as soon as the tire blew out, I was like, I wonder who shot out that tire. <laughs> <laughs> See, one of the problems I had with this movie was lead actress Terry Trace. Not that she did a bad job, I couldn't get over seeing her with hair. Because I was a huge fan of Alien Nation, the series, where she played a yeah. newcomer and she was bald. So I remember her in all the TV movies and the series, and seeing her with hair was just, just off. I, I don't know, she just, yeah. it was weird. I kept trying to pinpoint what I recognized her from, too, and then when I realized it was Alien Nation, I was like, oh, you look different with hair. It's it's strange how much hair can make a difference, doesn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> and then now this film did not do well at the box office, so that was it for the house movies, as they are. They've been trying to, as Cecil intimated earlier, they've been trying to make a remake for years. I'm sure Sean Cunningham sold the rights a long time ago. For some reason, it's not picking up, and I hope it doesn't. There's another weird house franchise within a franchise. There's the La Casa, La Casa. movies over in Italy. Now, the La Casa movies, La Casa means house in Italian. So they, the La Casa movies are just retitled American movies that are all put into the same franchise like la casa is actually evil dead la casa 2 is evil dead 2 la casa 3 is ghost house la casa 4 is witchery the movie with david hasselhoff and linda blair la casa 5 is the joe damato beyond darkness la casa 6 is house 2 the second story and la casa 7 is the horror show so House 2 and 3 are La Casa 6 and 7, if you're in Italy, because why the hell not, right? Yeah, it's just like the zombie... Just like the zombie movies. Exactly. Where there's like, there's uh, something else is a, is a zombie sequel somehow, like Anthropophagus 2 is Zombie 6 Monster Hunter, and it's like, what, what is with Italy? Italy's hilarious. I love the Italians, but. Yeah, so how would you sum up the franchise to someone who's never seen it? Who, who would go into this going, there are four, technically three, but four movies here. How would you sum this up for them? How would you sell them on watching this four, three to four film franchise? Oh, I, I wouldn't. I would just tell them <laughs> watch the first one and that's it. <laughs> Nobody ever needs to see House 2, 3, or 4 in my opinion. Same. Just watch the first one four times if you need yeah, to. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I don't agree with uh, Cecil and Mike on this one. I think uh, 2 and 3 are worth watching. I would just say it's not a cohesive franchise. Every movie is different. 
don't go into any of the films afterward expecting the first movie. You're getting something different every time. The first one is a, you know, haunted house, ghost story, supernatural kind of thing with a very good blend of comedy and horror. And then the other ones are all just weird movies. The second one is more of like a fantasy, fun kind of adventure thing with a very cool villain. I love Slim Razor. Uh, the third, the third one is just a dumb mess of a movie. If you just want to watch like Byron James and Lance Henry and dicking around for two hours. And then just don't watch the fourth one. And see, I say it's an interesting franchise to see the progression of Sean Cunningham losing control as a producer. Because he had control of the first film, he had control of the second film, and then you just see the other two just spiraling out of control, and you see how he started to lose his powers yeah. as we get into the early 90s. So Harry Manfredini scores all of them. Obviously, he's the Friday the 13th guy. One of the things I found really fun watching every House sequel is hearing his sounds sort of evolve. Like, I think the first one came out around when Friday the 13th Part 5 or 6 came out, and then every other movie that comes out, you can hear elements from every Friday the 13th movie that actually came out in that era too so the house movies kind of show you that harry manfredini sort of rips his rips himself off uh the same way a lot of other composers do that's very true so on that note mike white where could we find you well, you can find me over at projectionboothpodcast.com or over on twitter at proboothcast cecil where could we find you being wrong because repossessed sucks oh shush you can find me at uh, escapistmagazine.com, goodbadflicks.com, as well as Good Bad Flicks on Facebook, uh, YouTube, and Twitter. And Peter shows up an hour late, but where can he be found? You can find me usually being on time on uh, Twitter at Cinematica, Facebook, The Cinematicus, YouTube, The Cinematicus, 1201beyond.com, and thegrindhousechannel.com. I'm usually not late, but when I am, it's fashionable. It's true. But you can find me at 1201beyond.com. You can contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Guys, keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night.
Radiodrome is a 1201 Beyond production. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.